Thank you. You may be seated. Fifty years ago yesterday, July 20th, 1969, America put its first man on the moon. And I'm old enough to remember actually uh, seeing the television broadcast of this historic moment and hearing those words, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. What an achievement. But what is of interest to me is seven years earlier, on September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy spoke to a crowd of about 40,000 that had gathered in the stadium at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And there he gave the famous speech, we choose to go to the moon. The president gave America a vision for space exploration, aiming at garnering support for America to put the first man on the moon. And though President Kennedy never saw his dream realized, this speech began our country's quest for this amazing journey, this race into space. One of the excerpts from Kennedy's speech really caught my attention. This city of Houston, said the president, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. The country was conquered by those who moved forward and so will space. Paul's example in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 that we considered last week exemplifies the spirit of Kennedy's words, not waiting, not resting, not dwelling in the past, but moving forward. Now, Paul's race that he describes in Philippians chapter 3 is not a race into space. It's a much greater race. It's a more incredible race. It's a more significant race. It is the race that he summarizes in chapter 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And today we'll continue looking at this race of the Christian life that Paul describes as we look at verses 15 through 21. Now the word of God for God's people, Philippians 3, 15 through 21. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heaven. It revives the soul, and may it revive our souls today. Think of all the ingenuity. Think of all the power. Think of everything that went into putting man on the moon. And that pales into comparison to the power of God that is going to bring all things to consummation, even the transformation of our lowly bodies to a glorified body. I want you to think about that as we look at this passage today so that we might see the greater race is not the race to space, it's the race to heaven. And so the outline is relatively simple. You'll find it there on page five of your bulletin. Paul gave an example, his personal example, his testimony of his race in running the Christian life in verses 12 through 14, and now he applies it. And he applies it in three ways that we just read about in verses 15 through 21. He first applies it in giving us the right understanding of Christian maturity. We're to hold to the right understanding of what it means to be a mature Christian. Secondly, he urges us to follow the right model of the Christian life. And then thirdly, he appeals to us to embrace and to live in the right citizenship. We are citizens of this country, but more importantly, we're citizens of heaven. So those are the three things that we will consider today as we look through Paul's application of his example that he gives in verses 12 through 14, of pressing on and pressing forward in running the Christian life to the goal, heaven itself. Let us pray. Father, we ask you to guide us, guide us as we hear your word expounded guide me as I preach may all be true and faithful in Jesus name amen the first way Paul makes application to the example that he has given is that we might have a right understanding of Christian maturity so what what does it mean to be a mature Christian when I think of a mature Christian I think of one person that many of us know, and that person is Mary Reed, a former member of Covenant who grew up on the mission field, served for over 40 years with her husband John in Japan, and both John and Mary are now home with the Lord in heaven. I remember Mary's prayers and prayer meetings that we would have, especially in connection with mission conferences. And this, this sweet little lady who just epitomized, in my mind, Christian maturity would just describe to God in prayer and to all of us in the room just how much of an awful sinner she was, how much she needed God to change her, how much she needed forgiveness and restoration, Really what Mary was saying is, this, is this, this woman who has just lived in the heart of evangelical missions and used of God in so many ways. What she was saying was, as a mature Christian lady, I need Jesus more and more and more. If we buy in to the notion 
and let me just say false notion, that Christian maturity is I'm getting better, I'm sinning less, implying I need Jesus less, then Mary Reed was a very immature Christian. But Mary Reed was not an immature Christian. She represents for me what a mature Christian is, one who is so aware of their sin, one that has grown so close to Christ that they see more their struggle with sin and they see more their need for Jesus. Let me just give you a simple definition for Christian maturity. And I take this from a Puritan, John Owen, who said, big sinners need a big Jesus. Christian maturity is this, a growing awareness, I need Jesus more. In verse 12, Paul acknowledged his race was imperfect and incomplete. He had not yet reached the finish line, that's what we talked about last week. But he also acknowledges in that that he was imperfect and incomplete. He was at the same time just and sinner. He continued to struggle with sin. It's interesting that Paul's use of a Greek word that's translated perfect in verse 12 is the same word or form of that same word that's translated mature in verse 15. And so what Paul is saying here is that maturity is not being perfect. Paul admitted he wasn't perfect. But mature is striving for per perfection at the goal line in Christ. And I think it's important to add that in Christ. A mature person is striving pressing on, straining forward to grow, but in Christ, I need Jesus more. Verse 15, Paul reveals that others follow his example, that they are mature saints like he is a mature saint. I just think of Timothy and Aphrodite that he gives his examples at the end of uh, chapter 2, they would certainly be included in those of us who are mature, those others who are mature, and likely there are much more than that. But he says in verse 15, those of us who are mature think this way, have the same mind, have the same understanding, have my understanding, Paul says, of what it means to be a mature Christian. And so, a truly mature Christian like Paul and all those that think like him know how much they need to mature and they endeavor to press on and strain forward to mature in Christ as they move towards that goal, the finish line in heaven. And so this understanding of Christian maturity that's given here that I believe is at the very center of what Paul is saying counters the notion that maturing as a Christian is I'm getting better, I'm sinning less, I need Jesus less, I've got it all together. 
the truly mature Christian sees how much he or she does not have it all together, but how together Christ is, and how merciful Christ is, and how powerful Christ is. A mature Christian says this, I need a bigger Jesus today than I thought I needed yesterday. What is your understanding of Christian maturity? Paul calls us to have the same mindset that he had about the definition of a mature Christian. And the remainder of verse 15 points to Paul anticipating that some will not embrace his understanding of Christian maturity. And for those people, Paul says, I just simply trust the Holy Spirit to reveal this truth to them. And that's the same for us today. May the Holy Spirit reveal to us what it means to be a mature Christian. And then in verse 16, Paul exhorts all of us to hold true to what we have attained, namely this definition of a mature Christian, that a mature Christian is far from perfect, but in Christ that individual is enabled to strive to become perfect in Christ at the finish line, heaven. Now the second way Paul makes application of, this, of his example is encouraging the Philippians and us to follow the right models of the Christian life. In verse 17, he commands them to imitate him or me, not me, but Paul. And imitate others, Paul says, who walk like me, who have the same mindset as Paul. Now, this very encouragement that Paul gives, imitate me, he, he gave in other passages of Scripture, just to name three, 1 Corinthians 4.17, 1 Corinthians 11.2, and 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9. So this was not unusual for Paul to encourage disciples to imitate him. So we have to ask a question. Why do we need models of living the Christian life. Why do we need Paul to say imitate me and imitate those who are like me, like-minded with me? And Paul gives us the answer in verses 18 through 19. The saints in Philippi, and by the way, the saints here in Little Rock, including you and me, are surrounded by people who are running a race, but their goal is different. Their goal is not heaven. Their goal is worldliness. And so we have to ask the question, verse 18, to whom is Paul referring? He says, for many of whom I have often told you walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't know about you, but if someone called me an enemy of the cross of Christ, I would at least, that's, pretty, that's a pretty serious accusation, isn't it? But Paul is warning the Philippians not to follow the example of some that are posers, that might seem like they are models of how to live the Christian life, but in actuality, they are negative influences. They are actually harmful to the Philippians. And likely these missionaries or these enemies of the cross were individuals 
who were itinerant preachers or missionaries who were going about and Paul had confronted them in the past. Likely these individuals were not in Philippi but were just roaming around preaching and teaching broadcasting or projecting the image of I'm a sincere Christian living the Christian life but in actuality Paul says they're enemies of the cross. And this is incredibly important for us to be very careful who our models are in Christian living. This is a warning and it's a warning that we need to heed today. Well, what, what does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? That might be a good question to consider. One way to think about this is an enemy of a cross really doesn't have genuine fruit of saving faith. And the Apostle Paul shows us four um, ways in which these individuals did not show genuine fruit of saving faith. Just look in verse 19. He says their end is destruction. In other words, their eternal destiny is damnation. They are headed towards eternal punishment. Obviously, their goal is not heaven but hell. Secondly, he says, their God is their belly. They worshiped themselves. They had, they had an appetite for uh, physical, sensual desires. And they were gluttons for living satisfying their own sinful desires. They glory in their shame, Paul says. They were prideful over things that should cause shame. Think about people in our day. Just to give you an example, it's just, it is amazing to me that individuals champion same-sex marriage, homosexuality, abortion, prideful about it, things that should cause shame. Well, enemy of the cross. And then he goes on to say that their minds were set on earthly things. Now, I must admit it is a challenge for me to not to have my mind set, at least in part, on earthly things. <laughs> there are a lot of earthly things that we need to deal with each and every day, right? But I think Paul is speaking of something more than just simply, I've got to balance my checking account to make sure I've got money to buy the Fruit Loops uh, tomorrow, right? Are Fruit Loops earthly things? I guess they are. No, someone said. <laughs> yeah. I guess I should have said Tang since we're in kind of a space exploration mode today. You know, I think, wasn't Tang invented for, for space travel? Tang is really sugary. Have you noticed that? That's the last thing I need uh, today. But I digress. Let's get back to God's word. Always a good idea. Romans 8 seven through eight speaking of earthly minded things for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh 
those who are in the flesh, those who have their minds set on earthly things, those whose minds are only set on earthly things, Paul says here, and I'm reading a little bit into that, but I think this is what he's saying, cannot please God. Cannot please God. And so you may say, well, what types of things are earthly things, things to which Paul is referring here? Well, he tells us in Colossians 3, verses 2, 5, and 8, these sorts of things. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And Paul is saying there are these, these fake or imposter models out there of the Christian life that are enemies of the cross, they're harmful, and they will lead you astray. And so Paul urged them and he urges us to choose our models wisely. Follow the right models. Ones who live consistent with Paul's example in verses 12 through 14, who press on to that high calling, the goal in Jesus Christ. And for me, I think of Mary Reed as a model and who, who was imperfect like we are, but I believe as a model of what it means to be a mature Christian. You may recall the WWJD bracelets. I might ask, does anybody have a WWJD bracelet on? No one? Well, those bracelets were popular in the 90s. Probably some of our younger folk have no idea what I'm talking about. But it's those little plastic rubbery bracelets that had WWJD on there. I think most of us probably had one that if, if we lived in the 90s. And basically the idea here was to remind us that we need to follow the teachings of Jesus in the gospel. All right, not a bad idea, good thing. But yet, I want to suggest to you that it's not exactly the best way to go about this idea of having a model for Christian living. For this reason, please understand, yes, following Jesus' teaching in the gospel is a good idea. Do it. What would Jesus do? But even more, we need to understand that Jesus was the God-man. <laughs> Jesus was the Savior and Lord. And Jesus did a whole lot of things that I will never be able to do, like atone for sin for the world. Can't do that. But I would suggest to you that Paul gives us really what should be on that bracelet, and it's WWPD. What would Paul do? In fact, that's what he tells us. <laughs> he says, imitate me, do what I do. And Paul sets himself and those like him as models for running, for pressing on and straining forward in the Christian life in Christ toward that goal, which is heaven. WWPD, that's the bracelet that we should have. And if we live consistent with Paul's example, we too become models. So for example, what Paul is saying here is 
yeah, you imitate me, WWPD. But as you imitate me, genuinely and sincerely, you will become a model for others. So WWTD, what would Tim do? WWSD, what would the session do? WW fill in your name, do. We need to follow the right models of running the race of the Christian life. And as we do, we become models for others that they would be encouraged to press on to spring forward to that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the third thing I want us to talk about today, the third application of Paul's example is with regards to embracing the right citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. So the enemies of the cross described in verses 18 and 19 run like citizens of the world. But, Paul says in verse 20, the true maturing saints is a citizen of heaven and, our, and we should run accordingly. We should run as citizens of heaven. Our lives should be markedly different in quality and with respect to goal and destiny as the worldly person because our goal is heaven and our running is fueled by the power of Christ. You know, our national leaders today are in this debate about should the citizenship question be on the next U.S. Census? Are you a citizen of the United States of America? I don't know what you think about that. My purpose is not to say one way or another, but there is no debate about the question, am I a citizen of heaven? And I'll tell you the reason why, because God answered that question in eternity past when he chose us in Christ to be glorified, to finish the race, to break the tape at the finish line, to live as a citizen of heaven today, even though we are citizens of the United States, and we should be thankful for that. That is a blessing. That is a benefit. But more importantly, we run as citizens of heaven because we will reach the goal according to the purposes of God in his eternal plan of salvation. Think about that. We run with the benefit of being assured of crossing the finish line. And we don't even have to show a passport to get over the border. Because our names are written in the book of life. Further, we have this benefit. From it, or because of it, Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, also in verse 20. By the way, this whole passage in the, in the original language is just very difficult to interpret. 
So I'm just giving you the best that I, I can understand. Lots of complicated language here Paul uses. But what he's saying, I believe, is this. We already have Christ. We're citizens of heaven today. We are members of the kingdom. The kingdom has already come. But we're still in this waiting game. Not only have we not crossed the line, but we're waiting for something even more significantly in many respects, and that is we're waiting for the Savior. I believe this is an allusion to the second coming of Christ. I believe Paul is pointing to the consummation of history when all things are brought to their proper conclusion according to the purposes of God. When Christ returns, all things will be consummated. When Christ returns, when we're in heaven with him, when we have crossed that finish line, we will fully have all that Christ has for us. That was one of the points from last week. And the kingdom will have come in full when Christ comes again in power at the last day to consummate all things. So what Paul is saying here is that we're awaiting that, that great and final day, that day of consummation where absolute fullness and completion will come to us. We'll have Christ in full. We'll have the kingdom in full as citizens of that kingdom. Verse 21 tells us other benefits of that day when Christ... What, what will Christ do in the day of consummation? One thing he will do is that he will complete that which he has begun in us. Remember back in Philippians 1 verse 6? That he will transform, Paul says in verse 21, our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And this is a, re this is a reference, a clear reference, to the hope of the resurrection of the dead at the last day and the glorification of the saints. For our bodies will be miraculously transformed. Our body and soul will be reunited. Our bodies will be miraculously transformed in the likeness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through, or 52 and 53. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And the last part of verse 21 teaches that Christ will come back as king with all power to subject all things to himself. He will come in power to consummate all things. He has the power to raise dead bodies of the saints. And by the way, those who are not saints will be raised as well, but they will spend eternity in torment and punishment in heaven before the saint God has the you know there's a lot of debate about well if, I, if I'm cremated how does that affect uh, the, the resurrection well Jesus is able regardless of the disposition of your earthly body be it involuntary cremation we go down in a fiery blaze of glory in an aircraft or we're thrown into the sea and eaten by fish or we're cremated, or we're buried in a casket in the ground, 
All things have been subjected to Jesus. Jesus will take all those molecules and bring them all together and raise the dead. Do you believe that? The very same power we read about in Psalm chapter 8 of God creating the, the power that we we looked at in Colossians 1, a profession of faith of all things being created by that is the power that is going to raise the dead bodies, our dead bodies. Now, some of us may be around when the Lord returns, hallelujah, but most of us will be dead and our bodies in some state of decay, and yet the very power of God is going to come and raise all those dead bodies and transform them. Something, by the way, Lazarus did not experience when he was raised. He was just raised a normal old bodily life. We'll be raised to glory in the last day, in the day of consummation. So it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of computing to put a man on the moon. And now they're saying, let's just skip the next moon mission, let's go to Mars. And so that's going to take a lot of ingenuity. It pales into comparison to the power of God through Christ Jesus to raise your stinking dead body from the grave and transform it into a body that is like that of Jesus. Is the greater goal space or heaven? Is the greater race space or across the finish line where Jesus awaits? One commentator that I love so much, has helped me so much, is Dr. Hendrickson. And he, he had this little phrase in, in light of what Paul says here. The hope of Christ's return, listen, the hope of Christ's return, let me just rephrase Hendrickson, the hope of Christ coming to consummate all things has sanctifying power. Has sanctifying power. Let me explore that a little bit. Has sanctifying power in that it motivates us to run, to press on, to strain forward, to mature in Christ, to reach that goal of heaven where Christ awaits for us. We're not perfect. We're not mature. We're to press on. But we are racing to that finish line where the power of Jesus will transform us into perfect image bearers of him. President Kennedy gave us, gave our country in 1962 a vision to conquer and build and to win the space race. As citizens of heaven, Paul gives us a greater vision than that. It is not to conquer and build. God has already conquered, and God has already conquered his enemies and our enemies, and God has prepared what Hebrews calls a better country. And that better country is heaven. And we are called to press on, to strain forward, to mature in Christ that we might become that perfect image bearer one day and inhabit that perfect country for all eternity. This is what Paul means when he calls us 
to live as citizens of heaven. My race terminates in perfection. Perfect image bearer, better country. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. I ask you, O Holy Spirit, to reveal to us the truth of your word, as Paul even said the Holy Spirit would do to those that might disagree with his understanding of the Christian life and the race of faith. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might encourage us today to be honest, be mature in that we're honest about our imperfections, but we would flee more and more to Jesus. And even as we do that, we will progress in the race toward heaven. Father, thank you that that today our true citizenship is not of this country or of this world, but it is of heaven, that, that heaven that will last forever, that heaven where we will enjoy being the perfect image bearers of God, that heaven where we will enjoy being with our perfect Savior and King. Father, encourage us to be motivated by Christ coming in all power to consummate all things. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.